This morning we are going to begin a new expository study in Scripture here at All Saints Church, and we're going to be looking at the book of Jude. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we have gathered together for the purpose of exalting your name, for the, for the purpose of glorifying your name through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so glad to come and sing your praises and to pray together. And Lord, it's exciting to hear the word of God, the word that you have given. And we pray, Lord, that as we now embark upon a new study in your word, we pray that you would enable us to understand, for all understanding comes from you. We pray that you would give us the ears to hear. We pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would take away prejudices, that you enable us, Lord, to have the courage to hear you, the humility to hear you, and to be changed by your word. Lord, we we pray that um, when we hear your word, Lord, that we would be those who fear you and who listen rather than who sit in judgment over you thinking that we know best. Lord, thank you for your amazing love towards this world and towards each one of us. And we just commit this to you and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to start out this morning by uh, first discussing why the book of Jude. Why will we be looking at Jude uh, for our next study? Then we'll look at some general information about the book of Jude, just briefly as a preliminary to our study. And then we'll begin uh, expositing the book of Jude, and we'll just start with the first few verses. So why the book of Jude? I'd like to read to you a quote by a respected theologian named Donald Guthrie. And here's what he says about the book of Jude. Perhaps more than any other New Testament book, the epistle of Jude is assumed to have little or no permanent value and is therefore virtually excluded from the practical as distinct from the formal canon of many sections of the church. What he means there is that while the book of Jude is not excluded from our formal canon, for many people in the church and for many sections of the church, the book of Jude is excluded from their practical canon. Okay, Meaning they don't read it much or they don't think it has much value. That might sound strange to us, but there are many quotes that could be produced where commentators or theologians or other Christians actually say the book of Jude has no value. And they think it shouldn't be in our canon or it, it, it should be in our canon, but it doesn't have a much practical value. Now how many of you... If, if we were to, um, or if each one of us were to write out a list of our favorite New Testament books in order on a piece of paper, how many of you would put Jude near the top of your favorite New Testament books? Nikki would. <laughs> so with one. I think for many of us, the book of Jude probably wouldn't be near the top of our favorite New Testament books. Perhaps it might be near the bottom, Right? 
How many of you are drawn to the book of Jude? That you're just so excited to read that book when you sit down to read your Bible? Or is it, is it the kind of book that you read because it's part of the New Testament and you eventually have to read it so you get to it? But how, how many of you feel like you're totally drawn to it? Sure. It gets me pumped up too. <laughs> that actually, I'm, I'm really pumped up about this study. Yes. In terms, if we were to write a list of importance, uh, the most important books of the New Testament in order, how many of you would put Jude near the top? Now, obviously, all the books of the New Testament are important. But sometimes there are some that are a little more important than others, like Romans is probably more important than Philemon, right? Now, Philemon's important. It's inspired. It's the Word of God. But in what priority would you recommend people read this? How many of you even know how to answer that question? How many of you feel like you have a firm grasp of Jude and its contents? Like you really know what it's talking about and you could, you could even lead a Bible study on it and walk someone through it. I think many Christians would answer in the negative that Jude is one of those obscure books in the New Testament. We've all read it. We've gotten through it. We can say we've read it. We're not really sure how to really wrap our fingers around it. And so for that reason, it tends to have not a lot of practical value to many people in the church. Now, not only is the church's general ignorance of the letter of Jude a good reason to study it, But also, and I'm convinced, another reason for studying it, and right now, and this is why we're going to study it, not only because of the general ignorance, but because of the great relevancy of its message. And I believe there are few books more needful and relevant for our day to day. And and I'm saying that honestly, not because I'm supposed to say that because we're going to be studying the book of Jude. I truly believe that there are few books in the New Testament that are more needful and relevant for our day today. Donald Guthrie also says this, the neglect of the book of Jude reflects more the superficiality of the generation that that neglects it than the irrelevance of its burning message. Great quote. Our neglect is our fault. It does not show the irrelevancy of what he says it's burning message, and indeed the book of Jude is a burning, hot message. Now what is the message of the book of Jude? If we were to summarize it in a phrase, like we might do for many books of the Bible, how would we summarize the message of the book of Jude? What's that? False teachers. False teachers. Now, there's a lot of false teachers, right, in many of the books of the Bible, so that's perhaps too general. Because like most New Testament letters, uh, most New Testament letters, not all, are addressing particular problems or particular issues that have arisen in the church. And Jude is one of those letters. The, The author of Jude is addressing a particular problem. And what is that problem? What is the issue in the book of Jude? Now certainly, as we'll see, it is in fact false teachers, as Tom has said. False teachers and false teaching. Now, what is their false teaching? And how does Jude confront it? Because if we just said, I'm going to summarize the book of Jude by saying, Jude is about false teachers. Um, I don't think that would be clear enough because many of the books in the Bible are about that, right? What exactly is it? Okay, Gnosticism is a suggestion. Apostasy, okay. The title of 
this new series that we're going to be doing will, I hope, provide the answer. I'd like you to just make a mental note of this. This will be the title of our series in Jude, Counterfeit Grace and the Wrath of God. Counterfeit Grace and the Wrath of God. If I were to be asked, what, how would you summarize the book of Jude? What is it about? And this is the answer that I would give. The book of Jude is about counterfeit grace and the wrath of God. This is why it's so relevant today, for we today are living in a culture of counterfeit grace and that largely does not believe in the wrath of God. True? True. Do we live in a culture that largely does not believe in the wrath of God? Now, if you were to go out on the street and you were to ask people, do you believe, and not just atheists who don't believe in God, but if you were to ask people who profess to believe in God, do you believe that God is actually angry with people when they sin? What do you think the average person would say? And we're not talking figuratively, and we're not talking metaphorically. When, when God sees the sin of mankind, as the Bible describes, his nostrils flare, now that's certainly metaphorical, but he gets angry, and God is a God of wrath. How many people would say, yes, I believe God is like that? I'm sure there's some, but I think for the, the vast majority that you would talk to, they would say, no. I'm speaking this from a bit of experience being on campus. One of the things I, have to, I realize by being on campus a lot and talking with people is that most people do not truly believe in a God of wrath. Last month, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the PCUSA, uh, were formulating a new hymnal for the use in the PCUSA. And they wanted to include the song that we sing, In Christ Alone. However, they wanted to modify one of the lines. The line that says, On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. This is the song that Keith and Christine Getty wrote. These are their lyrics. And so they wanted to modify it to, on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. That's a true statement, right? The love of God was magnified or exalted or demonstrated on the cross. True. But they wanted to omit the mention of the wrath of God. The Gettys refused to surrender those lyrics, and so the hymnal decided to drop the song in Christ alone. This just happened last month. See, this is what's happening in our culture. Even in the church, there is a movement away from believing or proclaiming that God is a God of wrath. In the last century, Richard Niebuhr said this famous quote, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a world without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. He was criticizing and describing liberal Christianity in his day, that this was the movement, this was their message. God is not a wrathful God, men are not sinners, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't really a necessary thing, except that it demonstrated our service to God and how much God loves us in some kind of an ambiguous way. And he was criticizing this tendency in the church. Yet evangelicals are also guilty for how often... Do evangelicals and the evangelical church, how often does the church that professes to believe in the wrath of God speak of God's wrath and of the punishment of 
God uh, against sin, about hell. How often do you and I speak of this thing, these things to others? L. Page Patterson, the uh, president of the so- uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said this, this chilling statement. Evangelicals have voted by the silence of their voices that they either do not believe in the doctrine of hell or else no longer have the courage and conviction to stand and say anything about it. That's a chilling statement, isn't it? They voted by the silence of their voices. And that is a description of uh, the Christian church at large today, that we have been largely silent in an area where the Bible has not been silent. Would you agree with me that the Bible has not been silent on the subject of the wrath of God? It's because it's unpopular. And so we choose not to speak what is unpopular to save ourselves face. But this is why our appreciation of the gospel is so woefully low and why so many people today do not see a need for Jesus Christ. We're in danger of losing the gospel altogether. The church has become a self-help club something nice to go to on Sunday and sing some emotional songs, and eventually people are realizing you don't really need it anymore, right? You don't need Christ. You can get along and be a good person just fine without the church. There's lots of alternatives in this world. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jude, this is what the book of Jude is all about. It is a letter about grace and wrath, which is the heart of the gospel, So when we think of the book of Jude, we should think, this book is all about the gospel. This book is about the things that make the gospel the gospel. The the wrath of God and the true grace of God. And this is why this book is so important. And it's a big problem that the church does not see it as relevant or valuable. We're missing its message. We're missing, as Guthrie said, its burning message. And there's nothing more relevant and urgent for us today to hear this book and what this letter has to tell us about counterfeit grace and the wrath of God. G. Campbell Morgan said this, this letter has perpetual application to the people of God. Perpetual application to God's people. As we preach the grace of God, we need to make sure that we are clear with our message and that we are not preaching a counterfeit grace. A grace that does not know anything about the wrath of God. And so I'm excited to examine this book together here at All Saints Church. And I hope you are too. And I hope that it will be edifying and encouraging and enlightening. Now, before we begin the exposition, a few brief comments about the book as a preliminary. We've talked a little bit about what the book of Jude is about. I'd like to talk just briefly about the authorship, the date, and the audience of the book of Jude. Now, the author of the book of Jude has the most, probably the most common name in the uh, Jewish world in the first century, which is Yehuda in Hebrew. And lots of people had this name in the first century. And you can probably think of several people with that name in the Bible. Now, there is a large consensus among scholars that the author of the book of Jude, this Yehuda, is not the disciple of Jesus. Well, certainly it's not the uh, betrayer of Jesus. 
Judas Iscariot. But nor is it the other disciple whom the Bible says is not Judas Iscariot. Remember in the Gospel of John, he pipes up finally, and he says something, and it says, then Judas said, not Judas Iscariot. And there's a large consensus among scholars that the author of this letter is not the disciple Jude, but is actually the brother of Jesus, the the other brother of Jesus. Jesus had apparently four brothers, the Bible tells us. And you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and there's a list there of the names of Jesus' brothers. Just turn there briefly to see this. Uh, The reason why they believe this is not the disciple is because, first, the author of the book of Jude does not call himself as an apostle of Jesus. He calls himself a servant of Jesus. That's not, of course, uh, bulletproof evidence that it's not the one, but he doesn't call himself an apostle. In verse 17 of Jude, he actually refers to the group of apostles, and he does not seem to include himself in that group of apostles. And what seems like the, the definitive proof, however, is that in the list of the disciples of Jesus, the, the Jude that we're talking about, the Jude who is the other disciple of Jesus, is called the son of James, not the brother of James. And there's a big difference between being a son and a brother of James. Our author calls himself the brother of James. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 55... The people are complaining about Jesus. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And so here we see that Jesus had a brother named Jude or Judas and that this Jude was the brother of James as our author uh, says of himself. And so I, I believe also with the large consensus This is who we're dealing with. Now, you remember Jesus' brothers at first did not believe in him. John chapter 7, they uh, said, why don't, you know, they were teasing him and saying, why don't you go make yourself known to the world? And it says in that text that they did not believe in him. So at some point, James and Jude, whom we have letters written by in the New Testament, had a change of heart and a change of conviction. And they came to believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And if you turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, you'll see that James and Jude and Jesus' brothers were actually there on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, speaking of the saints in the, uh, in the upper room, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So at this point, Jude was a believer in Christ. And if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we actually get an insight here into the position that Jude had in the church and that he was actually a prominent Christian in the early church. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5. Paul says this about his right to have a wife. Do not we have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter? So here we see that obviously 
the brothers of the Lord had a prominent position in the church in the early days of the church. It wasn't just the apostles, but Jude as well. Now, it's impossible to date the book of Jude precisely. The key factor in dating the book of Jude has to do with Jude's relationship to another book in the Bible. And how many of you know the, the other book in the Bible that Jude has a very strong relationship with? Can you remember? It's the book of Second Peter. And anyone who reads Second Peter and Jude side by side, even casually, cannot help see that these books have a direct literary relationship to one another, especially 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude. They, use the, they have the same theme, they use the same rare words, they use the same metaphors and the same Old Testament illustrations as they're describing the very same theme. Obviously, God wants us to hear this twice. Okay, The message of Jude is recorded essentially twice in the New Testament. Now the question is, since we see that there's an obvious literary relationship between the two, and all scholars will agree on this, they say these guys knew each other's works. It's not a coincidence that one guy wrote his letter in one part of the world, and one guy wrote his letter in another part of the world, and they just so happened to use the same words, have the same themes, same Old Testament illustrations. Um, It's clear that one of them was actually aware of the other one's letter. The question is, who depended on who? Who depended on who? And in answering this question, we can then roughly locate when Jude wrote the letter. Now, obviously, if Jude is a brother of Jesus, his lifespan would, have been, would be limited to the first century. So here we have a first century letter. Now, Peter, according to church tradition, died around 65 AD. He died around the same time that the Apostle Paul died, according to church tradition. Around 65 AD. And Peter wrote 2 Peter near the very end of his life. So we can roughly date the letter of 2 Peter to around 65 AD and before that. The question is, when was Jude written in relationship to that? If it was before 2 Peter, then scholars say, you know, roughly from 50 to 65, Jude could have written it. If it was after 2 Peter, then roughly between 65 and 90, Jude probably wrote this. And there is no way of knowing whether he wrote it before or whether he wrote it after Peter. You can, you can read about it if you want in any commentary. Uh, the scholars are all divided. There's no conclusive proof who depended on who. The point here is that reading both of them, because they are related, will enrich our understanding of this very important message. So that's a very important thing to know as we begin our study of Jude is its relationship to Second Peter. Who is the letter of Jude written to? You'll see that it is not written to a particular church. Jude doesn't say to the church at Smyrna. Jude is one of the general epistles, as they are called, which means that it is written to all believers and not to a particular church. It was meant to be copied and shared and passed around to everyone. And these general epistles have a very special application to every single age. There's an immediate application. Unlike some of the other letters that are written to particular churches, we sort of are, are looking over the shoulders 
of uh, the readers and as Paul's talking about uh, the church at Galatia and they're being pressured to be circumcised, you know, it doesn't have as immediate an application to us. It has a more indirect application. We pick up the theme, we apply it to ourselves. But the general epistles, the beauty of them is that they're addressed to all Christians. Really, their theme and their uh, point applies to all time. And so when we read the book of Jude, it's important to realize and I, I trust you'll notice this, that there's nothing that is in the book of Jude that doesn't apply directly to our day today. All the more reason for us to be familiar with it. So with that, please turn with me to the book of Jude and we'll begin our exposition. We'll just read the first Three verses this morning. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now the first thing we read here is Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now when we realize that these This man, Jude, was actually the brother of Jesus. This is a very powerful statement, is it not? Now imagine calling your sibling your master and that you are the slave of your brother. Now most kids uh, would, you know, (laughs) be repulsed by such a thought, would they not? And I'm sure Jude was, uh, before he was a believer, thinking that Jesus could be his master, right? So obviously this is an extremely powerful thing. Think about it. The one At one time, uh, they're living together. These are brothers. He doesn't believe in him. He's just his brother. And now, Jude is saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Obviously, something radical has happened to convince Jude that his brother is someone beyond who he ever thought he was. Right? Imagine. what It must have been radical for a brother to think a brother was the Messiah. Jude obviously had a powerful revelation of who Jesus is. And that revelation caused him to drop all familial connection with Jesus and take up his spiritual connection and realize that that is the connection that mattered. And now he calls himself the slave of Jesus, just like everybody else. Just like all other Christians, I too am a slave of Jesus Christ. Being the brother of Jesus doesn't give me some special um, uh, insider's connection with Jesus. I too am a slave. You couldn't stand up and you couldn't go to heaven and say, "Well, Jesus, I'm your brother, right? Or I'm your mother, or I'm your father." You didn't have a father. I'm your sister. So we have something special here. Like all other believers, Jude took his place 
before Jesus Christ as his Messiah and his Master. Apostle Paul said, We at one time knew Christ after the flesh. Henceforth, we do not know him anymore after the flesh. It's very important to realize this, that the early church did not know Jesus anymore as, a human, as just a, a regular human being, a brother, a son, a carpenter. But they knew him as their Lord, and they submitted to him as their Lord. Consider how powerful this statement is from the Jewish perspective that the Jews considered themselves no one's slaves. The Jews knew themselves to be a delivered people, a people that were delivered from slavery and they were only the servant of God alone. As it says in Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve Israel in the Old Testament is called the servant of Jehovah. And the Jews understood themselves not to be the servant of any, but only the servant or the slave of God alone. And so for a Jew like Jude to say, I am the bond slave of Jesus Christ, he is not simply saying a little thing. And he is not saying, Jesus is my employer, but I am essentially free. He is saying, Jesus is actually my Lord and I am actually his slave. And so therefore what seems like a very casual phrase actually provides an insight into what the early Christians understood, who the early Christians understood Jesus to be, and that is they understood Jesus to be God himself. For they called themselves the slave of Jesus. And they didn't mean a temporary thing. Worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And the early Christians served and worshipped Jesus Christ as their Lord, their Savior, their God. What a powerful thing for Jude to say. Why does he call himself the brother of James? Is he seeking to get some accolades as well here? Is he seeking to say, do you know who I am? You need to listen to me because I'm the brother of the head of the church at Jerusalem. But brothers and sisters, the church doesn't function like that, vying for position and power because of who you know and who you're related to, like in the Dominican Republic, as our dear friends from the Dominican Republic tell us. In the Dominican Republic, if you want to get up in the world, you have to have connections. You have to know people. The church does not function like that, and far be it from us, to ever function like that. Jude is not saying, I'm the brother of James, so you need to listen to me. He's simply distinguishing himself from all the other Yehudas in the first century. If he had just said Jude, nobody really would have known who that was. Jude, the brother of James. Got it. Now, I've already mentioned that this, is a, this epistle is a general epistle. Now, see in verse... Um, One, how Jude addresses the Christians, whom he is writing to. And I would like you to note here that what Jude says about the believers here, because it is a general epistle, he's not saying to the church in Smyrna who's been really suffering a lot of persecution at the hands of the Smyrnites, whatever you would call them. He refers to Christians in a way that is descriptive of all Christians. And so as we read this 
Now, I want you to realize that what Jude says about the believers here is true of you if you are a Christian. And it's true of your Christian brother. And it's true of your Christian sister. What does he say? To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, there's three things he says here, and I'd like to... to show us that these three things are true for all of us who are in Christ. You are called, you are beloved, and you are kept. The first thing he says is you are called. Now clearly Jude is not writing to all men, right? The epistle of Jude is not written to all people everywhere. It is not written to every person in the world, whether they believe or not. It is written to Christians, and he calls them the called. And so when he calls them the called... This calling is something more specific than just being invited to salvation. This isn't just those who are invited to salvation. But this is something more specific. Now, the theologians call this effectual calling. Effectual calling. Those who are not merely invited, but who are called by God, and it's true of every single Christian. And the Apostle Paul says this about effectual calling in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And you're probably familiar with this. He says, Whom God predestined, them he also called. That means he does not call those but whom he's predestined. And those whom he has called, them he also justified. And those whom he has justified, them he also glorified. They call this the golden chain of redemption. But the point is, if you are going to be, if, if you end up in heaven, um, that's because you are justified, right? Those whom he glorified, those whom he justified, he glorified. If you end up in heaven, if you end up glorified together with Christ, that is because you are justified, is it not? Now, if you end up justified, that is because you are called. And if you end up being called, that is because you were predestined. All, he who has one of those things has all of those things. And so every Christian who has been justified through faith, you can truly refer to them as the called. Not merely the invited, but the one whom God effectually called. What does effectual calling mean? Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, put it this way, and I think he put it very well. This calling is a summons from the king of the universe, and it has such power that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. Is there such a calling like that? Now, we don't know anything like that in this, on this earth, do we? You can call a dog. You know, <laughs> come here! <laughs> And maybe if you've trained him well enough, he'll come, right? But you can't just call the neighbor's dog and say, come, right? That dog won't come. You don't have an effectual calling towards that neighbor's dog. But God, the King of the universe, not only invites all the world to come to Christ to be saved, and make no mistake, he does. God invites everyone to come to the feast and be saved. But not only does God invite all, but those whom God predestined, he effectually calls, come, and you come. And because he is the king, he brings about the response that it asks for in the people's hearts. 
Whomever He calls, He justifies. And not all are justified, brothers and sisters. The word church actually means the ecclesia, or in the Greek, the word is ecclesia, which actually means the called out ones. This is what the church is. The church is not a building, an institution, a hierarchy. The church is the ecclesia, which is the called out ones, the body of Christ made up of members, people who have been called out of the world by God. And how blessed you are, you today who are in the church, who are a part of the called out ones. How blessed you are to be a part of the called. Jude refers to these believers as the called. He secondly refers to them as beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. Now, if you are a believer today, if you are justified, then this is also true of you. And just receive this from the Word of God this morning. Not only are you called, you are beloved in God the Father. How many of you ever doubt that God loves you? Ever forget the cross? Ever forget His tenderness towards you and His patience? Let it be known to every believer that you are beloved in God the Father. Now, we know from Scripture... All the world, all the world is loved by God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And when Jude calls the believers here beloved in God the Father, he's not excluding the fact that God loves everyone in this world. God loves those sinners who hate him and who don't believe in him. If God didn't love sinners, none of us would be saved. But Jude is not here talking about God's general love for all mankind. But Jude here is referring to God's special love for Christians who, according to the Greek, are in God the Father. Now, some of your translations might say who are loved by God the Father, but in the Greek, the word is in. You are loved in God the Father. An interesting phrase. Now, what does this remind you of? who are loved in God the Father. Does this recall another passage of Scripture? What this should make us think of is Jesus Christ, before he was betrayed, in John chapter 17, in his prayer, in verse 22 and 23, Jesus says this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. His those who have believed in Him, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Okay? What Jesus is saying here is that God loves Christians as much as he loves Jesus. What an amazing thing. Now we know that God loves the entire world. He loves us all, and he doesn't want us to perish. But when a believer is justified in Jesus Christ and becomes righteous before God and becomes a child of God, God loves his son, the father loves the son, and the father loves his children as much as he loves his son. And he sees righteousness is in them and he loves them for righteousness' sake. 
This is a very special love that God has for you. You are beloved in God because you are in God, because you are in Christ, and you are righteous, and you are his child, and he loves you in a very, very special way that we haven't even begun to wrap our minds around. Jesus talks more about this love in John chapter 13 through 17. You can read about it. What a relation we have to God. The Christian has a relation to God that a non-Christian does not. Third thing he says about the believers. That's true for you today if you are a Christian. Not only are you called, not only are you beloved, but he says here this very encouraging thing that you are kept as well. This is very encouraging so far, isn't it, the book of Jude? You are kept. Now, some translations will say you are kept by Jesus Christ, and some translations you will say, say you are kept for Jesus Christ. And while, of course, both of these senses are true, the consensus of Greek scholars say that we are kept for Jesus Christ. You are called, you are beloved in God the Father, and you are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, in what way are we kept for Jesus Christ? What's that, Ailey? To be his bride. Exactly. We are kept for Jesus Christ as a bride is kept for the bridegroom. And this is important that we don't forget this, that there is, a, there is a waiting period right now, is there not? Just like before a couple gets married, there's a waiting period. And there's a waiting period right now for every Christian believer and for Christ. And we must not forget, now, we certainly must not forget all the things we do have in Christ. And we are, according to the Bible, sitting with Christ at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. So there is a sense in Scripture in which Christ and you are not separated at all. You're actually dead and your life is hid in Christ, uh, with Christ in God. You are sitting at the right hand of the Father and that's something God wants you to reckon every single day of your life. God is with you. Jesus is with you. You are sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's true. But we must not forget the other sense in Scripture that we are waiting for Christ from heaven and that we are being kept for Christ, and that while we are truly dead and our life is hid with Christ in God, there's coming a day when it won't be a hidden thing anymore. It won't be a thing that we have to hope for anymore, because hope that is seen is not hope, Paul says. And if we, hope, if we don't see it, why, if we do see it, why would we be hoping for it? The point is we don't see it yet. That it is true for us right now in a hidden kind of way. And we don't see. But there's coming a day. And how glorious that day is going to be, as we sing about in these hymns, when faith becomes sight, when we are actually physically, locally, spatially united with Jesus. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen? Doesn't that just stir your heart? And I'll tell you who else's heart it stirs. It stirs Jesus' heart. He 
is excited to see you face to face. He is excited to see you face to face. And so we are excited as well. And we're not to forget, as Paul said, that he has espoused us to our husband and he's jealous for us that we might be presented before Jesus Christ as a chaste virgin. Paul's concern for the church was that we would be pure when Jesus Christ comes. And the thing that makes us impure is when we're defiled, as he goes on to say, by Satan's false doctrines and lies that draws us away from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. All other ground is sinking sand. The simplicity that is in Christ is that Jesus is all I need. And when he comes up, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting only in him so that when he comes, Jesus, I'm dressed in your righteousness alone, faultless to stand before your throne, a bride that is without spot and without blemish. Now, if that depends on your works, you will never be his bride. Right? Imagine, you have to be without spot and blemish to be his bride because he's not going to have a, a spoiled bride. That does not and cannot depend upon your works, brothers and sisters. It depends on you being in the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ. That is the purity that Paul was jealous to guard the church in. And Satan is anxious to move you away from Now Jude is not giving us an imperative. He doesn't say keep yourselves in this statement. It's an indicative. You are kept. This is a promise. You are kept for Jesus Christ. And if you are called, and if you are God's child, if you are beloved in God the Father, you are his child and you are effectually called and you are justified, then the promise is that God will keep you and you shall be glorified together with Christ. You shall be. This is a promise. And there's two ways in which God keeps us. First of all, He keeps us blameless and spotless through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He keeps you blameless so that when you sin as a Christian, you are you you remain blameless in the sight of God because your blamelessness is not dependent on upon your own obedience and your own works. Otherwise, every time you sin, you might have to pray, please don't return soon, Lord. i got to get this all right again. That's a delusion. You are kept blameless. You are righteous through faith, apart from the works of the law. You are kept blameless through the blood of Jesus Christ at all times, if you are his child. What a beautiful promise that is. Beautiful promise that is. The other way we're kept we're kept by God, is that we're kept from falling away. We're kept from falling away. That that the scripture says that we are in God's hand, Jesus said, and no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. That Jesus, that God the Father protects you from the wolves that will come against you and seek to move you away from the simplicity of Christ. Now that doesn't mean you can be careless, and that doesn't mean you can let your guard down. It doesn't work like that. We are to be diligent. 
We are to be on our guard because Satan wanders like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But yet a, a, underneath our efforts is the promise that God will keep us. We love to sing of the grace when it first appeared and think of the grace that will be revealed. But how often do we think of the grace that presently preserves us through many dangers, toils, and snares? Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Do you see your life as a child of God, as grace from beginning to end? That Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith? that he that began a good work in you will also carry it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you understand that it was grace that taught your heart to fear? It was grace that relieved your fears? It was grace that you were saved by through faith and that justified you by grace? And it's also grace that keeps you and grace will lead you home. Or do you think that God starts it, God finishes it, but in the middle, the the white part of the Oreo, that's you. You know, because if that's the case, then it really does just depend on, on you. You know, it's all well and good that God started something. It's all well and good that by grace you'll finish it. But that really is irrelevant because if you fail, it's over. It really depends on you. If it's not, as Charles Spurgeon says, all of grace, then it isn't grace at all. Now, look at verse 2. We have another set of three things that Jude wishes for us to enjoy. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied unto you. How many of you would like that in your life? Mercy, peace, and love multiplied to you. Well, guess what? Jude wants that for you, and this is inspired. God wants that for you. This is something that is in the heart of God for you. Mercy, peace, and love. Now, there is no peace for the wicked until they come to Jesus. But this is something that every Christian can enjoy and have in abundance. Mercy, peace, and love. This is not a formality. This is not something he's saying mindlessly because at this point in the letter you should say this. This is a prominent theme in his mind. Look at verse 21. Return... Jude returns to this at near the end of his letter. This is one of his major imperatives in the letter. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto, self, unto eternal life. He comes back to this theme of love and mercy, and we'll get to that as we go on in the book of Jude. But this is not a formality, but it is ours to be enjoyed. Because you are a child of God, called, beloved, kept, You can enjoy the mercy of God that you have. You can enjoy the peace of God that you have. You can enjoy the love of God that you have. It really here depends upon us setting our mind on the things above and just simply realizing who we are in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us and how much He loves us. May it be multiplied to us. Now lastly, let's look at verse 3. Now Jude immediately, in his letter, cuts to the chase. He does not spend a long time in an introduction. 
He immediately gets to his point because his point is urgent. And verse 3 provides us, gives us the main reason for his writing. This is the main reason for him writing this letter. He begins by saying what he wanted to do, he wanted to write about our common salvation. He was actually in the process of writing a letter to the church at large about our common salvation. And that's a beautiful phrase, is it not? Common salvation means that Jude and Peter and Paul and you and I all share the exact same salvation. There are not degrees here, right? Otherwise it wouldn't be common. It'd be, you know, Linda's version of salvation and Eli's version of salvation that I got and Paul, the apostle... But the beautiful thing about it is every Christian shares in the common, the Greek word is koine, which is a shared common thing. Salvation. It's where we get the word koinonia, which is our fellowship. And this is what Christian fellowship is all about. This is what we've been talking about in our last series on life together. That life together is simply about fellowshipping in 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 what we share. Fellowshipping in what we share. And Jude wanted to do that very thing. He wanted to write a letter about it. He wanted to talk about it. He wanted to exhort you in it. He wanted to encourage you in it. This is what we should be doing as Christians who share a common salvation. We should be encouraging one another and exhorting one another, writing to one another, calling one another on the phone, sending an email to one another, text message, encouraging each other in our common salvation. Yet Jude was interrupted. Because something terribly urgent came to his attention He had to change his plan. He was writing a letter about common salvation. He took up the pen of necessity to write something that is indispensable for all ages in which God saw fit to include in our New Testament. What does Jude tell us to do in verse 3? I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you epagonizomai in the Greek. One word. In in our Bibles, it typically is translated by two words that you contend earnestly for the faith. But the one word in the Greek is epagonizomai. It's one word. And what the word means is to fight to exhort you indispensably of necessity for all ages to fight. comes from the Greek word agona, which actually was the gladiator contest. One of the most, if not the most intense form of combat there is, for it is fighting to the death. This is a life and death letter. And he's writing to the church at large to fight. And to fight, not in a casual way, but to the death. For what? For the faith. To fight for the faith. Now this is not a call to physical arms. Jude is not saying, the British are coming, get your muskets and go to fight. Okay? Someone far more dangerous than the British are coming. This is not physical. 
As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. This is a fight that has to do with truth and lies. The very same word that Jude uses is used in 2 Timothy verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. This is what Paul says at the end of his life. Now, did you see Paul picking up any swords during his life and killing anybody? No. But yet Paul says that his life was a fight and that he had fought it well and what that meant was is that he had kept the faith. To fight well is to keep the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and to lay hold on eternal life. So now Paul's saying, I'm not the only one who needs to fight. You, Timothy, need to fight. And by fighting, you will lay hold on eternal life. Because this is a life or death thing. If you lose this fight, you die. And not only is Timothy exhorted to fight the fight, Jude picks up his pen and calls all believers to fight for the faith and to keep the faith and to lay hold on eternal life. And it, he says, and he exhorts us to do it, and he is urgent. Warren Wearsby says, the epistle of Jude is a call to arms. Brothers and sisters, have you picked up the call of the Bible or the call of Jude, that you need to fight? Have you picked up that, that, that message? Have you received it on your radio? Have you heard it? Have you felt like, well, yeah, but that's just for other people in the church to fight. Right? That's not for me. But Jude here is writing to all believers. And it's something that concerns all believers. We are being called to arms. For the faith, as he says, that is once for all entrusted to the saints. Who is it entrusted to? The apostles? If it was entrusted only to the apostles, then the apostles would be the only ones who needed to fight. The apostle Paul fought. He told Timothy to fight. And Jude is telling us all to fight because the faith and the way he's using the word faith here is it's the body of belief. And we'll look at that in just a moment. It is once for all, meaning God isn't going to send it down again. This is what the word in the Greek hapax means. It is once for all entrusted to the saints. Jesus Christ came once for all into the world to die. And Jesus Christ gave the truth to the saints once for all. What a thought. That means that God isn't going to send it down again. That means that we are called to defend what God has given. That means if you want to understand what Christianity is all about... In a sense, you have to go backwards and learn what was given through Jesus Christ to the apostles and what was given to the, by the apostles to the church so that you can know how to defend it yourself in this day. 
What a thought. You see, when conflict arises over the truth, when conflict arises, and it will, and it does, and it has, when conflict arises over the truth or over the faith, it is not for us as Christians to avoid conflict. It is not for us as Christians to sidestep the issue, but to fight. God calls us to engage. And Christianity, we're learning here, is a fighting religion. Not fighting, we're not fighting people, but lies. We're not fighting with guns, but we're fighting with arguments, with the Word of God, and with love. It is a fighting religion, and make no mistake about it. Is that true or false? Christianity is a fighting religion. There has never been an age without the need for the church to fight. There has never been an age. And I'll give you just a quick sampling of history of some of the major conflicts that have had to have been fought and who some of the major players were. The Apostle Paul, even in the very earliest stages of the church, had to fight against what we call Galatianism. Didn't he? He didn't pick up a sword, but he picked up his pen and he fought against that lie that Jesus Christ was not enough and that it wasn't enough to believe in Christ. Paul said, if righteousness came by the law, Christ died for nothing. And he vigorously and vehemently defended the faith against the error of Galatianism or the heresy of Galatianism. Irenaeus, had to fight against Gnosticism and defend the faith against those who were corrupting the faith, against those who said that Jesus Christ was merely a spirit and that there is no resurrection of the dead. Athanasius had to fight against the heresy of Arianism, against that lie that said that Jesus is not God, but merely created like you and I. Augustine had to fight against Pelagianism, that lie that says mankind is not essentially sinful. And mankind has within itself the power and the ability to obey God, and that salvation comes through obedience to God's commands. Martin Luther had to fight against legalism and sacramentalism, against those who said that righteousness came through obedience to commandments and that faith alone in Jesus Christ, the simplicity of faith alone, was not enough. John Wesley and George Whitfield had to fight against formalism, against the idea that just going to church and being a member of the church was sufficient for your salvation, whether you had faith, true faith in Christ or not. J. Gresham Machen had to fight against liberalism, against the belief that God is not truly a wrathful God and that there is no such thing as a substitutionary death of Christ and that Jesus simply is teaching us the better way to live and showing us that God really isn't a God who punishes sin. Today, 
we too have our heresies that we must face because the conflict hasn't gone away and it never will until Jesus Christ returns. We can't think, well, because all those guys fought the good fight, therefore we don't need to fight the good fight, right? Because Apostle Paul fought the good fight and laid hold, laid hold on eternal life, so therefore we don't need to either. The time for war, as, the, as uh, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says, is now. There is a time for war. And that time is now. That the world that we live in right now is unfortunately ruled by an evil angel and a father of lies. And that the world lies in wickedness and in darkness. And the world seeks to destroy the truth of God, for they hate it. And yet we are called to be lights in the world and to be the pillar and ground of the truth and to hold forth the gospel in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We are called to combat everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. It is total war until Jesus returns. I hope you believe that. Well, some of you might say, well, well, I'm not cut out to be uh, an Augustine or an Athanasius or a George Whitfield. Well, I use these men's names simply because they were prominent, but they were not the only ones who were fighting for the faith. Every believer is called to fight for the faith. And just like in times of war, there are so many different tasks to do, are there not? Not everyone is a Marine, and not everyone is a paratrooper, not everyone is a tank commander. But there is a role for every single person in the body of Christ. And I hope you believe that. It's a complete war effort that I trust and hope that you will get involved in, no matter what your role may be. Whether it's writing, whether it's preaching, whether it's cooking, whether it's transport, whether it's funding, there's something for everyone to do. There's so many things we could talk about which we can't go into now. But I'd like to make this point in closing that we are not contending for the faith once delivered for the faith, uh, once delivered to the saints. We are not contending for the faith unless it is indeed the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And one can argue against many heresies. One can argue for many various true doctrines and not understand the gospel of Christ. Right? Just because you argue against Arianism and say that Jesus is God, and just because you confound the polytheists and you show that there is only one God, and just because you argue against formalists and you show that going to church doesn't make you a Christian, you can be right in all those various things and you can still miss the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel of Christ? What is the faith that is once for all handed down to the saints? It is that body of truth, yes. It includes uh, monotheism. It includes Jesus being the Son of God, but it is not merely those things. It is more than those things. And unless we preach the gospel, the good news, that righteousness 
comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the obedience to the law. Unless we preach that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to deal with our sins and that whoever believes in Him, in that simplicity of the Gospel, that faith in Him is what makes you right with God and not circumcision or good deeds or any ritual or any good work. We are not truly preaching the Gospel of Christ. No matter how many other true things we contend for, we must contend for it all because only righteousness by faith shows us who God is. Only when we preach Righteousness through faith. Are we truly preaching Christ? And not just ideas and philosophies and concepts, but we're preaching the person, Jesus Christ, who loves you, who died for you, who manifests his grace and his mercy for you at the cross, and who accepts you freely. Anything else, if it's not free, if it's based upon works, If you say there's one God and Jesus is God and going to church does not make you a Christian, but keeping commandments makes you a Christian, then you do not know who God is. You have an obscured view of the person of God and the person of Christ. As G. Campbell Morgan says, What is the faith for which we are to contend? The faith once for all delivered to the saints? It is the whole system of truth. But what is the system of truth? That truth is centered in a person, That person is the person of the Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles. The person is seen in the flesh in the first four pamphlets, but is interpreted by the Spirit in the apostolic writings. That is the faith. It is that truth embodied in a person. And we only know Jesus Christ through the Gospel of salvation by grace through faith. That is Christ. And we are earnestly contending not just for a concept, but for our bridegroom. We are preparing ourselves for our bridegroom by remaining true to him and who he is. No letter can therefore be more relevant and needful today for it reminds us of the war that we are in. It wakes us up to our enemy. It calls us to arms. So brothers and sisters, as we go on in our study of Jude over the next few weeks, I pray that we would hear today what he has to say and what God has to say to us. And that we may worship the Lord our God and Him only shall we serve. That we may fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life and be found in Him spotless when He returns. Dressed in His righteousness alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is timeless. As we prayed before, please enlighten us. Please teach us. Lord, may we always be aware of our enemy and that the days that we live in are evil 
and that there's a day coming when we will see Christ face to face. We long for that day. We pray that it would be soon. And we pray that we would be faithful servants of you in the meantime and of the faith that you have entrusted to us. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and honored and known. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.